welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. Today's show, I have Rick DiDonato. Rick is the Director of Development for Redberry Restaurants, and I brought him on because he's got an extensive history and everything you need to know about real estate and business. So I brought him on to just give us some general tips and uh, understanding of what you need to worry about as a business owner when dealing with real estate. And with that, here's my interview with Rick. Hey, Rick. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, Jay. How are you? Good, good. So tell good. us a little bit about who it is you are and what it is you do. Yeah, so my name is Rick DiDonato. I'm the Director of Development for Redberry Restaurants. We are a uh, very large multi-unit QSR restaurant company. So we are the largest franchisee of Burger King in Canada, and we are uh, the largest franchisee of Pizza Hut in Canada. And in the past, my past life, uh, I worked uh, a number of years uh, doing uh, real estate corporately for Starbucks Coffee Canada. Prime Restaurants, and Tim Hortons. So I've been doing this for almost 20 years, and I've always looked after corporate real estate uh, development for uh, QSR and restaurant brands across Canada. So it's safe to say you've negotiated hundreds of leases at this point, possibly. I have negotiated hundreds of leases, that is correct. Some good ones and some awful ones. Oh, what fun. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So um, we'll talk later about the franchises that need to move closer to my house when we're done. But that's, that's I a think we pretty much things. covered that everywhere you've moved. You've gotten a Starbucks put near your house. I did. And I appreciate yeah. that. And we'll work on a Burger King know. down the road at Mill Road very shortly. Well, there's one that, there's one that delivers not far from here. So that's not too bad. There you uh, go. The Pizza Hut. But you'll see. It's too bad you don't work for, for, um, for uh, Popeye's Fried Chicken. There's, those are two, there's two that are close, but they could be closer. Anyway, moving on. So. Business owners, when entering into a lease, let's start talking about leasing first. And this is a particularly somewhat nerve-wracking thing, especially for new business owners who've never had to do this before. So what are the important tips or things to look out for when negotiating your first real estate lease? The first thing you need to look out for and ask yourself is, do you have the know-how how to do this? And the most likely answer in your head is, yes, I can do this. The reality is, would you operate on yourself? No the same principle. You should not be doing this by yourself unless you have a number of years of real estate experience. There is so many people out there that the first mistake that they get themselves into when they end up in a bad situation on a lease, whether it's they can't complete the deal or down the road in the future in an engaged lease that they're involved in, they're not happy with the terms or they feel they've been put over a barrel by the landlord, it's because they did it themselves. So first things first, ask yourself, can you do this? If you can't, and you don't have the experience, not the courage or the confidence, the actual hard experience, then you should get yourself someone who can help you. So get a chartered real estate broker to help you do this. Yes, you will have to pay them a fee or the landlord will pay them a fee, but it will be money well spent so that you're not put yourself in a bad situation from the beginning. Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that because, well, first off, um, a lot of this is about educating people, but also educating them on how they do need advice on so many key factors. And the entire concept of courage, that that's what makes a lot of sense because frankly, there's a lot of courage involved with starting your own business. But uh, when it comes to things like leasing, it's funny. There's a lot of courage is interesting, but courage also, there's a lot of dead people because of courage, right? <laughs> like, Cemeteries are full of very courageous people. 
Yes, exactly. Very courageous people. You, you know, it's very courageous to climb that mountain until you fell off, right? So that that morbid side of po- uh, point aside, you know, I think I think one of the things that may lull people into a false sense of security is the misunderstanding around leases in general. That these aren't exactly standardized contracts, right? Like it's not like when you sign a, a you know when you rent a, an apartment or condo, right? Those are pretty much correct me if I'm wrong. Standard you know, Ontario, in, at least Ontario, Aurea lease contracts they just fill in the blanks but when it comes to commercial leasing different ballgame commercial leasing is a bit different there is some standard uh, concepts that are all the same in terms of uh, measuring of the space and such that are generally accepted principles within the industry but realistically it is a document that is up for negotiation between the parties that being said that leads to my second point of when you do get past the i've engaged a landlord and we're starting to put together a deal stage and you move to a lease you need to make sure you have a lawyer because you should not be reviewing a commercial lease unless you are a lawyer. A lawyer will be able to give you the guidance and understanding of the legal concepts that are involved in a lease. A lease essentially is a marriage contract. That's the way we view it. It sets the rules out for how you're going to live your life together as landlord and tenant, who is responsible for what, and what the consequences are if you do something bad. So actually, when I really think about it, unlike marriage, this spells it all out for you. I was going to say, uh, I think you, I think, you know, we've had the family law conversation and the vast majority of marriages do not have that spelled out. <laughs> so this and, one, you don't have to learn as you go. This one, you already know day one uh, what uh, what to expect and, and, and how to uh, follow the process with the landlord. And I will say, like a poorly negotiated marriage, a poorly negotiated lease can cost you quite a, quite a lot of money. Um, considerable amount. <laughs> considerable amount. And you never find that out realistically, Jay, uh, from most business owners people I've come in contact with that are small business owners and such, you never really come in to find that out and let, until you're in a situation where you're against the wall. And then you have this, oh crap moment, why am I in this? How did I get put into this clause? I can't believe that section says this. And so that's what it comes down to about starting this out with proper professional guidance. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think there's a lot of fatigue in general towards contracts and, you know, everything from end user license agreements to click yes to use this software, right? A lot of people, Number of people blindly sign paperwork is the majority of people, quite honestly. And, and with yep. some cases, you know, st- especially with standard paperwork, like standard contracts, I can understand the, the lower barrier to entry on doing that. But when it comes to something that can be, you know, from the sound of it, generally bespoke, I mean, it's something you cannot take a chance with. You need the proper advice on. Let's talk about some, some potential horror stories. Or like, what are some of the things you've seen landlords try to insist upon that were just completely offside in your mind? I have seen leases that have clauses in them that allow landlords to basically terminate the person's lease after the first day they opened their business. And people have no idea that that's in it. I have seen leases where landlords can uh, demand a financial statement. And if it's not satisfactory to no acid test other than their own, terminate the lease. So picture yourself as a restaurant owner. You build, and let's pick the most costly experience possible, a restaurant or a dentist, high capital entry costs, fit out in excess of three, $400,000, let's say, of your space. You sign a lease like this, and two weeks later, your landlord comes to you and says, please provide me a financial statement of this business. And you say, well, why? And then he says, well, per this section lease, I can demand a financial statement from you for review at any time, 14 days notice. Here's your 14 days written notice. Give it to me. You provide it. You're a new business, you have next to no cash flow and nothing in the bank because you're just getting off the ground and you've spent all this money building out your space. And the landlord then says to you, I don't like this. Get 
and then uses your capital that you put into your premises to turn around and release that premises to someone else. At a higher rate. Of course, at a higher rate. You've, it's already fitted out for a restaurant. I've also seen owners think particular for restaurants or, or professional services where they're selling their business. So let's say an eye doctor has a fully uh, licensed facility, tons of money and expensive equipment installed in a premises. He's retiring. He's going to turn around and sell his business. He sells it to the business. There's a transfer clause that says the landlord has the approval rate on sale of the business. There, within that clause is further language that says, if you come to me to sell the business, to transfer the lease, and I do not like the person who's taking it over, I can terminate your lease. These are very common. And a lot of small business owners do not know that these are in their leases. A sharp lawyer for a landlord will look out for their interest. The good news on this side is that as much as these are common with some smaller landlords, one-offs, generally this isn't the standard operating procedure because generally some of these smaller landlords, the problem is they think they can negotiate and legally do a lease themselves. So they tend to put themselves in bad situations as well. So Again, this all goes back to get professional information and advice and do a lease accordingly and properly. Handshake agreements. Hey, we're buddies. Oh, this is my wife's cousin, friend. Or I think, Jay, both of us growing up in European families know how that ends up. It's a disaster. Yes. Um, and there's too many people that continually operate like that. Yeah, it's... Um... You know, there's a couple, anytime I hear, oh, we have an agreement. No, it's not in writing. It's just like, okay. It's not um, an agreement. Yeah, it's not an agreement. And now different people have different rights and other people who would otherwise have rights are not defended. And right. you, know, you just, it's just not worth it. It's, uh, no. you know, there's, there's a few things in life you should never skimp out on in cost. And I would always say, argue that, you know, a good lawyer is one of those things, because quite frankly, if you think it's, it's, it's the old, uh, the old saying, if you think a professional is expensive, try hiring an amateur. And if for the old saying about, you know, a lawyer, a lawyer, a person who defends themselves in court has a uh, idiot for a client. Right? It's the, and I always say, I always say, Jay, anyone who anyone, and this includes family, <laughs> maybe I'm an awful person for saying this, but if yeah, someone, if you can make, if you can, yeah, if you can make a verbal agreement with someone, they should have no issue putting it in writing. If they don't want to put it in writing, that means they don't want it. They don't want to stand behind it. Yeah. And I mean, I've God knows I've met people like that in business and work for some where it's just, and frankly, if they don't want to put it in writing to them, it's a form of leverage. So, yeah, you know, they're kind of not be obligated by stuff. So, yeah. So yeah. So it's not good. Um, so, all right. So basically besides the fact you need advice, like let's go over some base, some other concepts and provisions. We just, you talked about an important one there, which was sure. leasehold improvements. So you go in and make an investment. The landlord benefits every time you spend money on the space. That is a point of discussion, negotiation, leverage. Can you talk about how that should be thought about in the negotiation? Yeah, there's really two types of deals the way, uh, I mean, lots of people that do this type of job that I do will come at you with all kinds of different scenarios. In the end, it boils down to two things, capital in, capital out. So if you, the tenant, are putting in all the leasehold improvements, so you're improving the landlord's space, you're demolishing, you're building new construction inside the premises, you're upgrading new roof, windows, all that kind of stuff, those are are tangible things that are not going to be leaving the premises when you leave. When you put that capital in up front, that's reflected in capital in, capital out. So if you're putting that money in, then your rent rate should to traditionally should be a little bit lower. If you are taking a check from the landlord, which is another option, which is called in the business, a tenant inducement, then you traditionally are in a sense using the landlord as a bank and you will end up paying them back 
for that inducement in rent over the term. So you may end up paying a little bit more in rent, but you're using their cash up front to improve the premises. That's really the two concepts of it. It's capital in, capital out. That's how we've viewed it. So again, if you're putting in the money, traditionally, the leverage is that you can say to the landlord, I'm putting in all the dough here. You got to soften up the rent a bit to help me get off my feet and get going. And you're recognizing the benefit of me improving your building. The reality is in, let's just use Toronto as an example, pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, Toronto was, the challenge was you had tons of buildings. And I'm talking, not talking about professionally run large institutional landlords. I'm talking about the average street corner location. Most landlords drive the buildings into the ground and demand the highest dollar. So the discussion is about educating and saying, here is the market rents in the area. Yes, your building sits in an area where it's worth $85 a square foot. However, your building, because you're a crappy landlord and haven't put a dollar into your investment, is uh, basically almost at its end of life. So it's not worth $85 a square foot. It's worth 60 bucks a square foot. If you want me to take this space and put in all the capital, if you don't want me to put in the capital and you still insist on 85 bucks a square foot, then you need to come up with some money. The number of deals in my career that I have walked away from where landlords are insistent that it is 85, 90, $100 a square foot, and uh, the building is pretty much ready to fall down and even the rats are leaving. I have walked away from those deals every time. Those deals are money pits that will kill you as a tenant. And it's a good example of if this is the way a landlord manages their asset, then this probably is going to be reflective of the type of relationship you're going to have with that landlord. And you probably don't want to get into business with someone like that. It seems like it'll probably let most likely be a lot of headaches. And I would say through my career. I'm sure there's a lot of people now with COVID where, um, you know, maybe they, they were not pleased with their landlord, but looking for rent relief who got very much, you discovered very much they got in bed with the wrong person. Yep. Yeah. And they're they're learning that lesson now because when times are good and you're making money and the landlord's making money, everyone's usually happy. Most situations with landlords are solved financially and everyone moves on with their life. But at these times are when you really see people's true colors come out. And just back to that point, like most of those times where we've walked away from those leases with where people are just demanding outrageous numbers, those spaces tend to still be sitting vacant. doesn't matter how hot the market is. So, well, no one wants to go into the ramshackle. uh, Yeah. Ramshackle location. So, so, I want to come back to the leasehold improvements too, because I mean, like this is a very important yeah. point because the reality is, is that especially you know, I'll use the the old Seinfeld uh, example of the uh, spot of death restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the reality is, is when you've outfitted a location for a certain type of business, it becomes immediately more appealing to anyone else looking to get into that kind of business. And I'm sure we've all seen again, like on Seinfeld, this, the spot of death with the restaurant that keeps on turning over, but yep. someone else comes along and says, well, those 10 guys may have failed, but I can make this work. And, you know, I'm specifically because I, I, you know, I want to, I want to get up and running fast and spend the least amount of money. I want to find a place that was already a pre-existing restaurant. I always mm-hmm. laugh at that because I always think to myself, like, are you not wondering why it didn't work out in the first place? But again, you, those locations can command a premium rent from people looking for that kind of business. So you're, you're, you're basically paying for the courtesy of using someone else's equipment. That's basically worth nothing. When a restaurant outfits itself or any professional business outfits itself with new equipment, it's like driving a car off the lot. It instantly devalues. And so, yeah, you're basically just stepping in to pay a turnkey rent. And that's the term that's used is because the space is ready. You can basically order your food, turn on the stove and start operating. You're paying a premium for that. That equipment belongs to the landlord. So if you abandon that space, the landlord under the law has every right to lock the doors on you and claim everything that's inside that space as theirs. So the so, landlord, 
owns that equipment, but what happens if it fails? If what fails? The equipment fails. It's the landlord's responsibility. If you, if, sorry, let me correct myself. If you're operating the business and the equipment fails, it is your responsibility. Thank you. Yeah. You are operating the business. If the restaurant fails and you leave, the landlord then can, with through a sheriff or a bailiff, lock the doors on you and claim everything inside. It's not just your space you're losing, you're actually losing potentially the, the asset investment in your business. You're you at 100%. So that's why it's important, again, to go back to the beginning point, which is make sure you have proper guidance when you're doing these types of things and make sure that you have an understanding of what you're getting yourself into. Because if you think like, oh, this isn't going to work out, but I can sell the equipment, not if you've abandoned the space, you can't. So that's why it's important. There's certain clauses, just kind of, there's a few certain concepts that are really important in commercial leases. One is a, a clause called a continuous operating covenant. So what that means is, and a lot of people don't know they have this in their lease, a continuous operating covenant is an obligation by the tenant to continually run their business in the premises. So the logic behind it from landlords is you don't devalue my property by having a vacant storefront. And if you sign a lease with me, you must run the business that is in the premises. It's never good to agree to this as a tenant. And I'll give you an example why. Let's say that you run a hair salon and you have a continuous operation covenant in your lease. You get sick. Your restaurant, your, your salon has to stop operating because you're sick. You have cancer. You're in a hospital. You could be in violation of your continuous operating covenant. Your landlord could seize your premises. Well, because that's you're the in real question. My first lease. question was define continuing. Like how yeah. many days do I have to be closed before they trigger that clause? So again, that goes back to the beginning about having a proper legal guidance because it's all like we mentioned at the beginning, a negotiation. If you have one ideal situation, you never want to agree to a continuous operating covenant. I personally never agree to them in any commercial lease that we do. It is an absolute deal breaker. But if you have to, for whatever reason, you could say, we'll agree to a continuous operating covenant for the first 30 days after we open the premises to the public for the first time. And after that, that's it. Or you can say to the landlord, I'll agree to a continuous operating covenant. If I close and don't reopen within 30 days, you can reclaim the premises and kick me out. But if you kick me out, my lease obligation is terminated and you have no recourse against me. So there's ways to temper it, but a lot of people don't realize they have those in their leases. And if you ever have that family emergency or health emergency or whatever it may be, you can be in a bad situation very quickly. You can be in default of your lease. And then if you don't cure that default within the X number of days as prescribed in your lease, which again is up for negotiation, you can then be terminated from your lease. The landlord can seize your premises. The worst situation I've seen of this blow up in people's faces is areas, let's use um, Ossington Street in Toronto as a perfect example. So Ossington Street, when me and you were growing up was a Portuguese area, right? Mom and pop yeah. businesses. And that Maybe was My it. grandfather had a pool hall on Ossington. So. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So what you've seen over the last 10, 15, 10 years, let's say realistically, is Ossington's become this uh, cool place for urban hipsters to go hang out and act like they're different from everybody else. So what you see in this example is people, landlords started to get the itch that this area is changing. I can charge a ton more rent and or I can where I can get tenants out of my building because condo developers want to buy some buildings and put them together to build small mid-rise developments. Well, a tenant closes for a renovation of his premises. He shut down for 30 days and the tenant, the landlord serves him notice that says, you are in violation of your continuous operating covenant. He says, what? 31 days goes by, he seizes the premises and kicks him out. 
So uh, that's why, again, this goes, I'm trying to not be a broken record, but I'm going to be, this all goes back to the beginning of, you need to make sure you have proper guidance when you're doing these things and you understand what you're getting into. No so, kidding. I mean, those are, I mean, that's just a couple of examples there. One thing that I think is not paid enough attention to in some cases is depending on the type of business, you might have the need for different utilities to be upgraded or to support the actions, yeah. what's going on there. Talk to me about that, whose responsibility it is and kind of best practices there. Yeah, I think, so it depends on the type of business you're in. And, and part of that discussion is at the beginning where you're going to build out your premises and you need to understand, and this is where having a qualified contractor and having a drawing design done by an architect or an engineer that certifies, you know, hey, this is what I need to have. A couple of reasons. One, you don't want to ever be in a situation where you've burned the building down because you've done your own makeshift electrical upgrades and you've overloaded the system and caused a fire because that can be then traced back to what you did and you're responsible. I know the location you're talking about, by the way, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> Two, you don't ever want to, you want to make sure that you're able to operate your business. So a good example of this is a bakery, right? You want to make sure within your lease that if you're leasing their space as a bakery, the beginning Number one, you want to make sure it's zoned for that use so that the city can't show up and shut you down, or you just never get a building permit, but then you're stuck in a lease you're committed to. But two, you then go include language in your in your lease that says to your landlord, you are leasing this premises to me as a bakery. This is the required electrical output that we require. You are, as a landlord, covenant and agree to provide this amount of electrical service to my prep, prep property. So it's about have, doing the homework up front, knowing what you need and making sure that it's inserted into the lease so your landlord agrees to it so that you never get in a situation where you can't get power, you can't get water or electrical service gets terminated or something gets shut down and then people are pointing the finger at you. Yep. Uh, and let's talk about other, you know, so that's an individual, you know, let's talk about in a plaza because there's other clauses I think that need to be contemplated when, when that's the case. Yeah, I think, so can I just speak in general in plazas? Yeah, that, multi-unit. Okay. No, yeah, multi-unit. Sure. So in plazas, there's a couple of things as a as a business owner you want to understand. It's easy for me to use a restaurant as an example, if that's okay, but it's these these concepts are applicable to any type of business. So let's say you're gonna lease the space in a restaurant. So first steps first, whatever space you're looking at, you need to make sure that your landlord warrants and represents that the space is zoned for that type of use. The reason you want to do that is you don't want to end up signing a lease and you apply for your building permit with the city. And the city comes back and sends you a zoning notice saying this unit is not allowed or zoned to be used for a restaurant space. And guess what? You're stuck in a lease for 10 years and you have to go to committee of adjustment now and you end up in an obligation where you have to pay rent and you're not even open. So that's step one. Step two is you want to protect your business in a plaza. So if you sign a lease that says you're going to open Jay's Portuguese chicken place, sorry for the racial stereotype, Jay, and you have a covenant, an exclusive covenant in your lease that says landlord. You are not permitted to lease any other spaces in this premises, current or future tenants, to anyone selling Portuguese chicken other than me. And then you would develop what's called a use clause. The use clause dictates what you do in your premises. And then you provide that to the landlord and make it a schedule so that he's aware that this type of use is protected. And then you are protected in that plaza. That makes your business more valuable in that property so that nobody else can come into that plaza and sell that use that you are doing. It increases the value of your lease upon sale. And also you may end up potentially paying a little bit more to the landlord in rent for that guaranteed protection. Because what you don't want to do is end up, and we see this in lots of plazas in across Toronto where there's six barber shops or five yep. hairdressers or four cleaners or three variety stores. And you're like, how the hell did this happen? So yep. that's a, an important clause. 
The other piece is you want to make sure that your operating costs, so those are made up of your common area charges, which are charges landlords apply to premises that you pay for maintenance of the property, snow plowing, landscaping, roof repairs, et cetera. And your realty taxes are properly weighted. So if you are in a plaza of 100,000 square feet, you want to make sure that your property tax and your are, are weighted on a proportionate share. So not that your little 200 square foot J Portuguese chicken place ends up paying the tax bill for the grocery store that's 50,000 square feet. So those are just some general concepts that you want to make sure that you're protected. And the other thing is you always have to think about your use. So if you are a business that requires, uh, the best example is a cleaners, let's say. You have six parking spots in front of your uh, pizza. Let's use a pizza delivery place, even better. You sell Jay's Pizza Shop and you have six drivers who work for you starting every day at three o'clock till midnight. You need parking. Your drivers need a place to park. You can't get the pizza from the store to the car and to the customer if your driver has nowhere to park and he has to walk across the street with the pizza. So it's important then to call that out to your landlord and say, I need five reserved parking stalls at or near my premises, and you would agree to that with your landlord, that are marked and signed for use exclusively by Jay's Pizzeria drivers. Mm -hmm. So these are all things that you need to think about. What supports your business and how can the property support your business? But those are some basic concepts that are really important in multi-unit plaza deals because these are things that can really come back to hurt you if you don't think it through properly. You never want to be, especially with a proportionate share, and I have seen this. I literally, and Jay, you know the plaza, there's a plaza was the one I used to live across from that had three plaza that had uh, three convenience stores and well, eight out of eight stores. The best example <laughs> is the one year we went to high school, which is at Renforth and Rathburn, where the no frills is. That the tenant's no longer there, but there was a tenant in that plaza that paid almost thirty-five percent of the realty taxes for the plaza, what? and was they the were a one? they were a, no they were a small restaurant. Oh, good God. And because they just didn't sign their lease properly, and I heard this through, I found this out through someone who did some leasing work in a plaza for the landlord, that was the situation. They were paying literally 35% of the realty tax bill. So the grocery store was actually getting subsidized by the restaurant. The major national brand grocery store was getting subsidized by a restaurant. Lovely. Yep. Oh, terrible. All right, Again, right. goes so, back to uh, having guidance. <laughs> absolutely. So we, uh, we covered a lot on, uh, on leasing. Let's talk a little bit about buying before a property gets acquired. I mean, here's the thing, there's an entire conversation I can have about acquisition and why it should be done within a corporation or a separate holding company. I'll save that for another conversation, but specifically from the buyer standpoint and the transaction itself, talk to me about what people should be aware of or concerned about. Again, sound like an old horse here, but plugging a dead horse, but again, make sure you have proper legal representation, proper real estate representation. The things you want to look out for, irrevocable dates, any type of non-refundable deposit that you're responsible for, any types of conditions that are attached to the purchase. So whether it's a condition of something governmental or approval that's required, those are the types of things that you'd really need to be aware of in a purchase situation of a property. And again, if you have the right professional guidance, those you will get that service and that kind of clarity as you enter into a purchase and sale agreement. Those are really the things that are most damning. And I think the other thing that's coming up more and more is environmental. You know, if you're purchasing land, you want to make sure that you're aware of, is there an environmental condition in this land? Are you purchasing a building or plaza that has old gas tanks buried beneath it? So doing your due diligence on environmental and zoning as well to make sure you understand what the property is currently zoned for, what is restricted and what can be used on the property so that you understand the full scope of it. So it helps to set up your table for 
these are the things I can do with this property to generate income. I can lease it to an auto body shop. I can lease it to general retail. I can't lease it to a healthcare clinic for whatever reason. Those are really the things that you need to do your due diligence on on purchasing. Good. Well, thank you very much for this rundown. Uh, I'm sure this will be of use. But again, as always, is the conversation, as, as the message is always on this podcast, get the right help. 100%. It's, it's 100%. Look, if there's one thing I can leave to the people who are listening to this podcast, I have been doing these types of transactions for over 15 years for major corporations. I manage the, all the real estate development for Tim Hortons in the Toronto and GTA area. I manage all the real estate development for Starbucks Coffee Canada and in all of Ontario. I still rely the two most important people that I when I'm doing these types of deals are lawyers and also our real estate broker partners. Ultimately, like any decision in business, it's inherent risk and you make a decision, but you shouldn't be making a decision based on, oh, I think I know everything and I can do this. And you know, it's just like selling my house or Oh, I, you know, it doesn't matter what the lawyer says. I, I'm, this is going to work out. This guy's my buddy and we're best friends and, oh, he's a good guy. And this is all going to work out. You've money. got to money always people. make sure you have things put to get what's that money changes people, man. It's a hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think too, I've seen too many cases where, especially with landlords, we've seen a couple of cases in Toronto too, where someone sets up an independent business. It's very successful. The landlord takes note of that and then decides, maybe I want to get that business now. So they do certain mechanics within their lease that you're not aware of in order to get their hands on the property and push someone out. So again, it goes back to Jay, like you said, make sure you get professional advice and guidance when you're doing something so that you don't end up in a, oh crap moment five years down the road. Yeah, there's uh, there's an old saying in Brazilian jiu-jitsu training, which is uh, when you ask the instructor how to get out of a certain position that they don't know, the answer is always, don't put yourself in that position in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> not great anyway Rick, thank you so much very much no appreciated worries. and i'm thank sure you. we'll find us informative take care have a great day bye-bye so that was my interview with rick DiDonato of uh, redberry restaurants hope you found that informative and uh, if you are looking to sign a lease uh, again this is not a standard thing get the right advice as always is the message on this podcast as always if you enjoyed this podcast please leave a review on itunes stitcher or visit your podcast as it does help people find us and thank you and take care this podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.